Thank you for tuning in to another podcast of Risen Fellowship. We're glad to have you with us, and we are studying through the book of Genesis. And I'd like to begin with a question tonight, if we could. I'd like to ask you, if you could uh, witness or be present at any great event in the Bible, which one would you want to have front row seats to? I've heard some people say the crucifixion. Others say the resurrection. Some people even go to the Old Testament, and they would have loved to have witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. And others would have liked to have seen David slaying Goliath. One theologian wrote this, and I think I have to agree with him. I would like to have been present when God finished his creation. It must have been an awesome sight. And what we're doing now with the book of Genesis, we're looking at the first part of it, Genesis 1 through 11, seeing four great events, creation, the fall of man, Noah's flood, and the rebellion at Babel. So we're going to look today at what Genesis of creation is, that first great event of creation. And you have to know and understand uh, those four things if we're going to build into our lives the basic designs that God has created for us. And so the title of tonight's podcast would be Four Divine Executive Orders. Over the last few years, as we who've lived in the United States have lived with a lot of presidential executive orders that have come out and changed a lot of things in our culture and in our society. Well, these in Genesis chapter 2 give us the, the first four things that God really set in order for society to work. Now, Genesis chapter 1, most people have studied over and over again, and there are six days of creation, and it's amazing the way they correlate with one another. Now, Genesis chapter 1 talks about the six days of creation. The first three days talks about how God formed the universe. The first day, of course, he created light. Second day, he created the atmosphere. He separated the waters from above the heavens to the waters below the heavens. And on the third day, he uh, gathered the water together and called that seas, and he made the land, and he called that earth. Now, day four through six, he did filling of those things that he created. Like on day four, where he created the light, he also created the sun, moon, and stars to be light bearers. On day five, he created the birds, which flew in the atmosphere that he created on day two. And then on day six, of course, he made the fish for the sea and he made the animals for the land. But the crowning achievement was on day six when he created mankind in his own image. And verse 31 of chapter one says, and when God saw everything they made, he said that it was very good. So now let's look at the divine executive orders of Genesis chapter 2. The first thing we see, the first executive order was the first Sabbath. And that chapter begins, the heavens, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Bible really speaks to us of three Sabbaths. And the first one is the personal Sabbath of the Lord God. And that's in the verses that we just read. Now, God didn't have a Sabbath because he got tired doing his creation work. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 40 that the Lord does not grow weary. But God set the seventh day apart from the work of his creation because he had finished his creation and he was pleased and satisfied with everything that he had created. And as I said, in verse 31, he said that he saw everything they'd done. And he called it very good. And notice, too, that on the seventh day, it did not have an evening and a morning like the other six days of creation, suggesting that that Sabbath day would have no end. But ultimately, God uh, would be interrupted on the Sabbath because man would sin, disobey his word, and then 
God would have to begin to work to draw man back to him. So that's the first of the three Sabbaths. The second one is the National Sabbath of Israel, the nation of Israel. Now, the first mention of a Sabbath for them was in the uh, wandering and leaving from Egypt and going to the Promised Land was the gathering of the manna. They were supposed to gather manna for six days. On the sixth day, they would gather enough for two days and not go out on the seventh day. And eventually, uh, it was included in the law of Moses that uh, God gave to the nation of Israel uh, on Mount Sinai. And Israel, as we know, declined spiritually and they did not observe God's word, including the Sabbath, of which would eventually lead them into captivity. And by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had added to the traditions of God's word and turned those few prohibitions that Moses had in his law into numerous regulations. But Jesus, of course, rejected all the traditions of men, and he clarified that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So we have God's personal Sabbath. We have the Sabbath for the nation of Israel, but we also have the spiritual Sabbath of the Christian believer. Now, when you trust in God, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us we become a new creation. And as a new creation, we get to enter into that rest that the Lord has for us that he spoke about in Matthew chapter 11. We're no longer under the bondage of the law anymore, as Galatians 5 talks about. For the believer, the first day of the week is the Lord's day. Now, to make the Lord's Day a Christian Sabbath is to confuse what these two days stand for in God's plan of salvation. The seventh day of the week is the Jewish Sabbath, symbolizing the old creation and the covenant of the law. And that formula in living under the the old covenant is first you work for the six days, then you enter into rest. But the first day of the week, or the Lord's Day, symbolizes that new creation that we are in Christ and the covenant of grace. And when you first day of the week, you find that rest when you believe in Christ, and then you begin to work, as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we are created for good works, and after we enter that rest of what Christ did for us on the cross, then we begin to allow our lives to be used for His glory. And in the new creation, God's Spirit enables us to make the entire week an experience of worship, praise, and service to the glory of God our Father. Now, the Jewish Sabbath, of course, was fulfilled by Christ on the cross and is no longer binding on God's people. If you want to read that in the New Testament, read Paul's writings of Galatians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 2. Now, some believers choose to honor the Sabbath day as a day unto the Lord, and Christians are not to judge or condemn one another in this matter depending upon how we want to work. So that's the first divine executive order was the first Sabbath that God created. The second divine executive order is the first home. And as you read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it says, These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when there was no bush in the field yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, 
in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made uh, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you drop down to verse 15. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. So that are the scriptures where we get the second divine executive order being the first home. Now, human beings are stewards of God's creation. And blessings come to us because of being able to live in this wonderful environment. And we're to use those gifts he gives us as he commands us to do this. God and man actually were designed to work together before Adam had sinned because God put Adam into the garden to do the work by tilling the earth and the soil and caring for it. It reminds me of the story of a retired man who was living in a big uh, city, and he got tired of seeing an ugly, vacant lot as he used to take his daily walk because as he went by to see all the trash and things that were accumulating. So he asked the owner for permission to plant a garden there. It took him days just to haul away all the accumulated trash and even more to begin to till the soil and prepare it. But the man worked really hard. And the next year, that lot that once was a trash heap was full of beautiful flowers, and everyone began to take notice of it. One man was passing by as the man was working in it, and he said to him, he said, God has sure given you a beautiful piece of property. And the man replied, yes, he has, said as the gardener, the one who had done it. And he said, but you should have seen this property when God had it all by himself. See, God has designed man to work with him in his ways for his purposes uh, to be able to make this blessing a world. And, and many people misunderstand work is not a curse. God created Adam and Eve, and even in their sinless state, he still had duties and responsibilities and jobs for them to fulfill. And he was allowing us to use our abilities and have an opportunity to work with God is to be able to show that we were going to be faithful stewards of his creation. But after man sinned, then our work became toil, but God still wants us to work. Now, the name Eden is an interesting name because it can mean delight or it can mean a place of much water, suggesting that this is a garden, and it was a paradise that God had created by his own hand for mankind, his achieving creation, to be able to enjoy. And it's interesting that the Bible history begins in a beautiful garden where man sinned. But then it's going to end in a glorious garden center where there will be no more sin. God is going to wipe it away. What brings about that change? Well, that's a third garden that the Bible speaks of, and that's Gethsemane. And you see, when Jesus was surrounded uh, by all the, the people who had come to arrest him, he surrendered to the Father's will in that Garden of Gethsemane. And from there, he went on to die on the cross for the sins of this world, not for his own sins. But at this point, sin hadn't entered into the Garden. So Adam and Eve, their happiness was blissful. They uh, were just unbelievably in a beautiful environment. So the third divine executive order uh, is the first covenant. We see the first Sabbath, we see the first home, then we see the first covenant. Genesis 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God created man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the word covenant literally is a binding agreement between two or more parties 
that governs that relationship. And the word here is used as a command, and it's used as command because God is the one who made the terms of this agreement, of this covenant. God didn't ask Adam for his advice. And I think we as sinful people are often trying to give God too much advice on how to run his universe. He simply gave the command, and Adam, as his creature, had to obey that command. God had given Adam this great uh, honor and a privilege to be his vice regent of his creation. But with privilege always comes responsibility. And obedience to his word would have kept Adam and Eve in the sphere of God's fellowship and approval. But God had placed those two special trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And eating from the tree of life confers immortality. The second tree really describes for us an experiential knowledge of good and evil. And God's command was that the day that you do it, your eyes are going to be open, but it's going to bring about death. And Adam and Eve had never experienced evil up to this point, so they were truly innocent people. But when they disobeyed God, in one sense, they did become like God, being able to discriminate of what the difference is between good and evil, but they became unlike him in that they lost their sinlessness, sinlessness and eventually would lead them to physical and spiritual death. And one of the most basic truths of life is seen right here in this divine executive order, and that is obedience brings blessing while disobedience brings judgment. So we have seen three divine executive orders so far, the Sabbath, the home, and the covenant. And then we see the fourth and final of God's divine executive orders, and that's the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 18 said, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make uh, him a helper fit for him. Up to this point, everything that God had created had been very good. But now something in this wonderful paradise God was looking at and said, It's not good. And that is that man should be Alone. God knew that Adam would need a helper that would be suitable for him to be able to have the enjoyment of everything that God had created for him. And finding no such uh, helper among the animals, then God made the first woman and presented her to the man to be his wife, a companion, and a helper. Verse 21 of chapter 2 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up uh, in its place with flesh. And that rib, the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Now, when we read this, it's very important for us to understand the roles and the responsibilities that God is putting forth with this divine executive order. It doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that woman is a lesser creature than man. The same God Uh, who made Adam, also made Eve, and he created her also in his own image. And Adam and Eve together were to exercise dominion over all the rest of God's creation. And even though Eve is made as a helper for Adam, we must understand that she wasn't his slave. Matthew Henry said it best in his commentary about marriage And right here from Genesis chapter 2, he says that Eve was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on uh, upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, 
under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. And again, marriage wasn't Adam's idea. This was strictly God's doing. The traditional marriage tells us that marriage was born in the heart of a loving God for the benefit and the blessing of mankind. And no matter what our courts decree today, and no matter what society may say is okay and permit, when it comes to marriage, God has the first and he will also have the last word about marriage. Hebrews 13 uh, verse 4 says the marriage bed should be undefiled. And Revelation 22 tells us that adulterers will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is serious business on this executive order of God's. And when God looks down on the world and what's going on, especially in the United States of America today about marriage, I think he's saying to himself words that Jesus said in Matthew, from the beginning, this was not so. I think he's seen us pervert what his plan for marriage is all about because God's original plan is one man with one woman for one flesh for a lifetime, to become one flesh for a lifetime. And marriage is important not only for the working of society, but marriage is also an illustration of the relationship that we can have between Christ and his church. And of course, Paul writes about that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. And Paul calls that marriage, that relationship between Christ and his church, a great mystery. It's a profound spiritual truth that was once hidden, but now has been revealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, you see, as he also talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus Christ is the last Adam which is kind of already correlate him back to uh, the first Adam, who was a type. And, and Jesus is fulfilling what the first Adam failed in. Jesus Christ came to the earth and fulfilled it. Adam was now, in this first marriage, was put to sleep, and his side was open so that he might have a wife. Jesus died on the cross, and his blood was shed so that he might have a bride for himself, which is the church and Christ loves the church and cares for her and he wants to seek to cleanse her so that he might make her more beautiful in his glory to be able to present to his father and one day Jesus Christ is going to come back to the earth and claim his bride and present her to his father in purity and in glory for heaven Jude 24 talks about that in Revelation 19 and, you know, and going back to the first marriage in, in uh, the Garden of Eden, when Adam saw his bride, he burst into joyful praise as what was written in verse 23. He said, then the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Her identity as woman would remind everybody that she was taken out of man and that the term man would always be a part of her existence as woman. She was made from him and for him, and he needed her. Therefore, they will always belong together, lovingly serving one another side by side. That's what Adam saw when he, uh, what Adam said when he saw his wife. But Adam didn't speak the rest of the words in verse 24 and 25. God said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They are God's reflection on the event and the enunciation of the principle of marital union declared by Adam. Marriage is a civil relationship regulated by law and should be a spiritual and a heart relationship governed by the Word of God and motivated by love. Now, we live in our world today that's still created by God, and we are His creatures made in His image, and we can still enjoy multiple blessings from the hand of God. However, when sin entered through Adam's disobedience, we realize that we're living in the consequences of not only being fallen mankind, but also living in a fallen creation too. And how tragic it is when we leave God out of the equation of our life and we become like confused wanderers in a very unfriendly world. But when we obey God's executive orders, His design for His creation, we can enjoy being His children in this world. Luke 18, verse 8 says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. I truly believe with all of my heart that that call needs to go out today more clearly than ever before for Christians to keep the faith. William Booth, uh, probably no relation to me, but he was the founder of the Salvation Army, wrote this. The chief danger of the 20th century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Boy, all those things really seem to be coming to the forefront in the existence and the lives of people in the United States of America. How many people are wanting to remove God, not only from the school, but from politics? How many people want to talk about heaven, but not face the reality of an eternal condemnation called hell? Uh, how many people are talking about Christianity and leave Christ completely out of the equation, uh, the, the equation of living life for him? And how many people are religious in their practice of life, but depend nothing upon the Holy Spirit to guide them. We are but one generation away from paganism. And if this generation, our generation today, doesn't keep the faith, these divine executive orders, and pass them on to the next generation, there will be no faith. And let me ask you, are you passing your faith on to your next generation? Here's the commission from the Lord that was written later in the Old Testament. In the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 11, he gives us this command. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking to them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. As we conclude this podcast tonight, I just challenge you to think about these are divine, not mankind's executive orders. These are from the second chapter of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. These are God's divine executive orders. 
And I just challenge you to think about it. How are you obeying the Sabbath? What about the home that God has given you? Are you being a good steward of the home that God has given you? Are you willing to live and obey by God's command? And if you have found a spouse and you are married in this day, are you living according to the way God's purpose and plan for marriage is? Or are you letting the world define what's there? I hope this is challenging. I hope it's encouraged you to be able to listen to God's word and obey it. And if you have any questions or comments, please just email me at mike at risen, and risen is spelled R-I-Z-E-N dot church, and I'll be glad to respond to you and look forward for another podcast.